Uh, hey, glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, if, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Jack. Hey. And uh, I'm thrilled that you're here. We've been in this series called Disciple, and we're going to continue in that this week, kind of looking through the Gospel of Matthew. What is, how did Jesus disciple the disciples? How, how, does, how do we begin to, to be more and more like Jesus? And so uh, I want to make a statement, see if you all agree. Uh, do we live in a culture that pursues achievement and recognition a lot? Yes, okay, so we kind of all agree in that. And by some definition, some might say that our greatness is measured by the amount of achievement or the amount of recognition, right? That in our cultural context, we may think that way. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think with your neighborhood, so the two or three people right around you, uh, hopefully you got to know them a little bit or say hi and and that you smell nice and they smell nice and and that you're good. Uh, But to talk for a couple seconds on naming the, the amount of award shows that you can name in 25 seconds, okay? So the amount of award shows you've seen on TV in 25 seconds, automatic, ready, set, go, go. The amount of award shows, name them. What are they? You're working together. Doug, you can't Google it. All right, 10 seconds. The amount of award shows. Okay, five, four, three, two, one, talking, 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 done. Okay. Uh, Let me just kind of go through a list, see if you got them. Uh, Oscars, yes, you got them? Okay. Emmys. You're awesome. (laughs) Um, Golden Globes, did you get those? Uh, Grammys. People's Choice Awards, got that? Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, come on. That's the best one. They slime people. Um, how many? Any other ones? What am I missing? The ESPYs, uh, CMAs, MTV Music Awards, or or they do they still do that? Like MTV used to have music, and then it was like all shows. And I okay. And so, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Those are some of the questions we debate. Who's on the Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of bands? Or who's on the Mount Rushmore of a particular genre of acting or actors or actresses or in sports, right? Uh, We say who's the greatest. In fact, we uh, erect a museum about that. We call it the Hall of Fame, right? You've heard of them. In fact, uh, put on your thinking caps. Let's see if you know where they are. So Major League Baseball Hall of Fame is located where? Cooperstown, New York, okay? NFL Hall of Fame, located where? Canton, Ohio. Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, located in? Springfield, Massachusetts. How many of you knew that now? Yeah, well, because I just told you. Um, International Tennis Hall of Fame, located in? Newport, Rhode Island. Well done. International Bowling Museum and Hall of Fame located in an alley. Just, come on. Just, it's, just, it's a bowling joke. Okay. In Arlington, Texas is where it's located. U.S. Handball Association Hall of Fame. Tucson, Arizona. How many of you had no idea we actually had a Hall of Fame here? Yeah. Tucson and Grant. Uh, you, you drive right by it if you blink. Um, but 
Go in and check it out, Handball FM. What do you know? Who cares? Okay. All of these and many others, obviously, are trying to identify the greatest among the great. The Hall of Fame, that's what we have. But what if someone redefined greatness? It might mess with how we view things or what we pursue or how we go after things. And I want you to keep that in mind as we are going to turn to Matthew 18, and we'll be there in just a second. But as we said, we started this series a few weeks back, kind of looking through the Gospel of Matthew. We said we want to, we want to learn to be a disciple. And, and we know discipleship is more like an apprenticeship, not an internship. An apprenticeship is I'm trying to become more and more like the one I'm following. I want to be like they would act. I want to say what they would say and do what they would do. I want to react the way they would react. And, and so because this is about becoming more, more like Jesus, not just knowing a bunch of stuff about Jesus. It's about having our character and our actions shaped by that. We had this uh, old ancient saying that rabbinical tradition would have that may the dust of your rabbi always be upon you meaning may the proximity of the closeness of the one that you follow may be so close that the dust that they kick up from traveling through life would rest on you, that you would have such a close relationship with. And so we looked through a bunch of different characteristics. If you missed any of those, I want to invite you to go back to our app and our online and catch up with some of those things. Last week we looked at the parable of the sower. And we talked about this idea that it's our responsibility as a disciple to, to maintain a receptive heart for the things God wants to do in and through our lives. And so today we come to this conversation that Jesus has about greatness and about defining what greatness really is like. And it's this conversation, this interaction, this, this uh, I would say, dramatic encounter that he has in conversation he has with the disciples. And so here's where it starts. Matthew 18, verse 1, here's what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, just stop right there. Isn't this fascinating? The disciples, okay, are falling around who? Jesus. <laughs> okay, roll with me on this. Who's been the one that's spoken to a storm and it stopped? Jesus. Did the disciples do that? Who's been the one that's been healing people wherever they go? Jesus. Have they done that? No. Who's been the one that has brought someone back from the dead or healed the diseases around or fed the 5,000? Okay. The, the Sunday school answer here is the legit answer. It's Jesus, right? So picture this. You're a disciple standing in front of Jesus who's done all these things, and here's the question you're asking. Who among us is the greatest? Can you feel the disconnect here? Uh, I mean, just if you're a parent, maybe you've had this moment where you've said something to your child, and then like 15 seconds later, they're asking you something that you literally just told them 15 seconds ago, and you're in that moment like, uh, duh. Like, I just answered that question. Um, this would be one of those duh moments, right? Think about who you're talking to, asking this question. Who among us is the greatest? You can read it in the Gospel of Mark. They're literally arguing on the road as they're traveling behind Jesus. Which one of us is better than the others? Which one of us is the greatest? 
And Jesus asked them the question, hey, what are you arguing about? Nothing, nothing. And then they finally get the courage. Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Just think about the context of that question and what they're trying to get at. It goes on. Jesus, and I love this, doesn't respond like I would have responded in that moment. I think I may have just lit into them. I don't know about you. Maybe you're wired differently than me. But I would have been like, uh, I can't even get my mind around your question and how dumb you are right now. Right? That's how I would be. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, going on, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one of these in my name welcomes me. Jesus, who's the greatest? What an odd question. Maybe not completely odd, if we look at scripture from a holistic perspective. As a student of the word, we have to look at context of what's going on around. So two chapters earlier, there's this moment where Peter says, Jesus asks, who do people say I am? And people say, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, whatever, prophet from the past. And he says, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. It's this incredible moment. And what happens right after that moment, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again on the third day, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Chapter 17 is the transfiguration. It's where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, not the others, just Peter, James, and John. They go up to a mountain and Jesus shows them his glory from heaven, like what he's really like in heaven. They get to see this. They behold this a little bit. They come back down the mountain, and mum is the word. No one talks about it. Can you imagine being the other disciples who are not Peter, James, and John? Hey, what'd you guys do up there? Uh, nothing. What do you mean, nothing? What, what happened up there? Uh, nothing. No one talks about it. Can you imagine that? I mean, you have these conversations where you engage in something and then someone wants to know about it and then you don't say anything and people begin to think. And so there's this maybe tribalness going on even within the disciples of, hey, Peter, James, and John get extra time with Jesus and we didn't. And can you imagine maybe those things and right after that, here's what happens. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And so in context you maybe begin to understand this division that's happening. See, the Jewish culture, a person's rank was considerably important. You can read about the parable Jesus tells in Luke 14, all about, hey, don't, don't outthink your rank. Let people lift you up. Thus, the disciples were naturally curious about their position in the coming kingdom. The one they're following is literally talking about death, and so maybe they're beginning to think, who's going to be in charge? When Jesus leaves or is no longer here, and I'm concerned about rank, I'm glad that we've progressed as humanity past this in our day and age. Maybe we haven't. 
where our thoughts and our concern about rank. See, the disciples' question revealed a serious misconception about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They assumed that God's kingdom would be just like any other kingdom on earth, on which rank and status and power and authority were marks of greatness. That's what marked you as great. But it's in this moment, through this question, where the disciples are bent and kind of looking of who's the best, who's the greatest, Jesus. Where he brings a little child in front of them. And you have to understand how shocking that would have been in the first century. Children had very little value in the first century. Sure, if you were a firstborn son, that you had significance in the family and being passed on, but the reality is children didn't have a say. There wasn't much value put upon them. Many of them were servants and had to live this out. In this moment, Jesus brings a child before them. We've gotten a little bit better in our cultural context of giving honor and value to children, but let's be honest. In a lot of ways, we're still the same. We treat many children, especially the unborn children, as something we can simply cast aside. And that should not be. It's in this moment where Jesus brings a particular understanding. See, in the first century, literally, civilizations, if you had a malformed child, you literally could cast them aside. Literally cast them aside. That's actually how the first century church began to gain traction. It's because they began to care for the ones who were cast aside, those who were passed over. And it began to win people over. That why? What's this with this group of people that loves in such a way? He calls a child to them and he says, unless you change and become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn and change. In Greek, it's this word strepho. Strepho means to turn, to change your ways, to change internally, to overturn or overthrow or demolish the old ways of doing things. You're, you're to change how you are. The ways of our world calls us to be people who are served, ones who have uh, to pursue privilege and prestige and accomplishment and trust in ourselves and to be the greatest and to be recognized as such. That's how our systems work. But Jesus calls us to a childlike faith, not childishness, which is how this whole argument started with the disciples, but to childlike faith. We're called to live a life of humility and with an attitude of it's not all about me type of attitude and approach to life. We're to be people who are motivated to serve others, not just ourselves, or not living with a pretentious attitude where it's about people serving me. That's so different than our culture pushes. Our culture says it is all about you. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom's different. It's not all about you. In fact, to be a disciple means that you're living a life where it's not about you. Hate to break that to you. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. What did Jesus want to change in his disciples? Their attitude toward greatness. The disciples have become so preoccupied with the organization of Jesus' earthly kingdom that they lost sight of the divine purpose. Instead of seeking a place of service, 
They were seeking positions of advantage. Who's the greatest, Jesus? I want to have the position of greatness. I want to be the position of advantage. And Jesus uses a little child to push back against the selfishness that he's seen with his, his disciples. And what he's saying is, this is about serving. When Jesus took a little child in his arms, he made the explanation of greatness even more distinct. To be great, one must serve, is what he's saying. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. Those with humility, who realize their need for a savior, who accept him and move into the world to serve, not only enter the kingdom, but they become the greatest in the kingdom of God. Not based on rank and status and position and power, but based on who they are. Jesus later would say in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples who are apprenticing after Jesus, we must allow the Holy Spirit to grow within us a motivation to serve others and not just serve ourselves. That's what marks a disciple and one who is apprenticing their life after Jesus. It's people who begin to live with a humble heart and they're others-focused. That doesn't mean you can't have self-care. That doesn't mean you can't take care of things of yourself. You are limited in your resource. You are limited in your time. But it means it's not all about you. I know you only have X number of minutes in a day or X number of amount of energy or X number of resources. But if all you do is spend it on yourself, then, friends, you're not apprenticing the way Jesus calls us to. Nor would I be. That's the challenge Jesus is laying out here. He's redefining greatness. It's what Paul picks up on in Philippians chapter 2. Kind of Lyle mentioned it. And Philippians 2 is this incredible passage, this beautiful passage. In fact, most scholars believe that verse 6 through 11 is actually a song that the early church sang as a way of remembering Jesus. In verse 3, here's what it says. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Not your mindset, but his. Humility is to be the new foundation of this Jesus-centered community, of a Jesus-centered life. We're to have that, to think like he would think and to be like he would be, to have the same attitude in mind as Jesus would in the situations in which you and I traverse. See, we're very familiar in our cultural context of upward mobility, right? We want to keep moving up in the world. Upward mobility is not a new goal that has somehow come around. Upward mobility has been around since the Garden of Eden. It's about moving up, and I want to be in charge. Questioning upward mobility causes an inner trauma within most people who don't handle it well. The mere mention of words of like demotion or downscaling or decreasing or losing or death to self, they trigger off danger signs and signals within us. I don't want any part of that. I want to move up. See, compass needles always point north, not south. And the human heart needle always points up, 
not down. We want to move up in life, and serving literally initially feels like we're moving down. And there's this tension that exists. You can't escape it. The cultural context in which we live pushes against what Jesus is saying here. And he's redefining greatness. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Paul's saying. If you want the mindset and to have this manifest devotion to Jesus, it's going to have to do something with downward mobility. It's going to have to push you down away from everything being about you and pushing you to other. The secret of being great in the eyes of God, the quickest way to maybe bring a smile to his face is to mimic the mindset and follow the example of Jesus. How did he do it? Well, Paul tells us how he does it. Can I just read the next few verses? Chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 6. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Now he's going to explain what that is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This downward mobility that we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus, you have to understand, was in that moment enjoying worship and the adoration of the entire universe. Jesus is fully God, a full partner in the divine prerogatives, yet voluntarily he relaxes his grip on those privileges. He doesn't give up his identity or his deity. He is fully God and fully man. That's the beautiful explanation of the incarnation. But he relaxes his grip on the privileges as God. How willing are you, how willing am I, to relax our grip on our prerogatives and our preferences and our privileges? How loosely do you hold to your positions or your possessions or your power. Most of us would put up a real fight if it meant taking away something that was dear to us. Even mature Christians struggle with this, if we're honest. Why? Because we're clutchers by nature. Remember the birds from Nemo? Mine, 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 mine. That's you, you, you and me, me, me. We're clutchers by human nature. It's what we want to hold on to. But here's Jesus, the holder of all the prerogatives of deity. Everywhere he turns in the universe, the heavens cry out, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb. The whole world is full of your glory. And in that reality, Jesus says, I'm going to relax my grip. I'm going to move downward to the ones that I love, and I'm going to serve them because I love them, and I can do for them what they never could do for themselves, and I will bring them home. Why? Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
when the downward descent had reached the furthest depths, God raised him back up. Why? Because God exalts the humble and he brings down the proud. That's what he's about. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others, give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 23, The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, Jesus is redefining greatness. And it pushes back against everything our world says about what greatness really is. Do I understand everything about that? No. But the tension's real. And you have to wrestle with that. We each have to wrestle with that. As a disciple of Jesus, what does that mean? What does it mean for me to relax my grip on the things that I want to be mine so much that I'm willing to hold them loosely? Say, God, you're the one in charge. You're the one. And I want to be lined up right in alignment with you. One of the big truths that we need to take as people who are trying to see Jesus grow within us, a, a expanding motivation to serve others is simply this. In order to serve, you have got to see. In order to serve, you have got to see. To serve someone, you must see them. You can't look past them. No one notices like Jesus does. Remember, it's Jesus in the crowd with the disciples, and there's a woman who's been struggling with the issue of blood for 12 years, and she comes up behind him and just touches the edge of his cloak, and Jesus stops all the momentum of the whole crowd moving toward something significant that they're supposed to be going to, and he stops. Why? Because he noticed. Do you? Do I? In our world that pushes us toward achievement and accomplishment and recognition, so many of us will live our lives at warp speed on an agenda and on a goal, and it's not wrong to have those. But can you stop and notice? Because in order to serve, you've got to be able to see. You just have to. And in our culture, that pushes us, we become so preoccupied with our own concerns and our own agendas that much of the world simply becomes invisible to us. And we don't even see it. And so the challenge is for us to say, no, service is rooted in seeing, in noticing, in seeing others the way Jesus sees them. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to so many to come. And Jesus comes to the earth not as one to be served, but as one who serves. Listen, this is not religious rhetoric that we just endorse as a good rule of thumb. The Christian discipline of service is the way the world will discover God's love. We must do this because it's the way people will see Jesus it's the way the world gets blessed. Henry Nouwen says this, our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. True fulfillment comes when we die to ourselves and we live sacrificially in serving others. That doesn't mean you don't have any self-care. I'm not saying that. 
but it means that you've moved beyond in, in your maturity to say it's not about me. And in our culture, that is such a tension to wrestle with, isn't it? If we're just honest. I love what Rick Warren says, faithful servants never retire. You can retire from your career, but you will never retire from serving God. We can serve God best by serving those he loves. For some of you, you may have reached that age of retirement. Let me tell you something. If you're not dead, you're not done. Jesus has more for you to do for this next generation and to move his kingdom forward. Don't sit on the sidelines. Find a way where you can leverage your life to serve the kingdom. The kingdom desperately needs people of maturity to invest. It's not all about you. It just isn't. And there's no way around that. Now, we have trouble making commitments to serve because we, in a lot of ways, we don't want to miss out on something. We, we literally have that FOMO, the fear of missing out. And so we don't say, I'm going to do this because we're like, well, maybe I'll wake up, I'll be tired that day, and I don't know if I want to do that. Or, or that takes a lot of work to go serve someone else. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. But the investment there matters. In serving others, we actually discover that the one person we don't miss is Jesus. He goes on in Matthew elsewhere and says, as you serve others, you're actually serving me. So it's in serving others that we actually get to bless Jesus. And we grow in our intimacy and our connection with him. Friends, you and I are to serve one another, involved in small ways and in large ways, but with humble hearts. We're putting the love of God on display for a watching world to see. And in doing that, that's where we're becoming great in the kingdom of God. And we let Jesus figure everything out. You don't have to measure it. You don't have to get caught up in the childish arguments of who's the greatest and who's better. Jesus will figure all that out. He modeled true humility and servanthood, and we're called to follow his example and to grow a motivation to serve those around us, to stay humble in a culture that pushes us to be anything but, but to grow a humble heart. So here's my challenge I'm going to end with and then a story. Uh, how many of you have this new technology called phones? Okay, how many of you can text on your phone? Like, I'm literally asking you right now. How many of you can text on your phone? Perfect, pull out your phone. You're going to do something right now. Now, I know this is scary, and I know what I'm about to say is challenging, and I don't care. Open up a text message. I want you to think of one friend, a friend that you know, that you trust, that you admire, that you appreciate, someone that you're connected to. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's your spouse, I don't care who it is. One person, and you're gonna text them a message in a second. And by texting them, here's what you're saying. Jesus, I wanna get better at serving. I don't know what that looks like. I don't have it all figured out. 
but this week, between now and next Sunday, so for the next seven days, Jesus, I'm committing that I'm going to serve somebody. I don't know what it's going to look like, but here's what you're going to text. If you have that slide, you can put that up. You're going to text them this. You're going to text your friend right now, literally. Hey, I'm working on growing my heart. God, uh, see, so you got a challenge in church today, so I'm praying for looking for God to use me to serve someone this week. Will you ask me in a few days how it went or what my plan is? All right? So, like, literally, it's right there. Just copy that. You don't even have to think for this exercise. Isn't that awesome? When you got it, I want you to hold up your phone, like when you got it typed in there. Some of you, like, have fat thumbs and you're, you can't text that fast. That's okay. That's okay. Some of you are young and you're like, this is easy. I did it with one hand and my pinky. It's, it's amazing. When you get it, I want you to kind of hold up your phone a little bit. That You don't have to be weird and, like, waving around, but just kind of hold it up that you got it. Okay? For some of you who are not holding up your phone or not doing this, all right. But this is the challenge. See, we talk a lot about serving. Saying, oh, it's good to serve. No, this is about actually doing it. So, in a second, when you're ready, I want you to hit send. Okay, and you're sending to a person. Maybe you send it to someone in your row. I don't care. But here's the deal. Do you know what you just did? You just prayed. Did you catch that? You literally just prayed. Because what you did is say, God, I don't know what this looks like. But in the next seven days, would you help me to team up with you to serve somebody? Would you just make me aware? Would you help me to see who I can serve in the next seven days? I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but I'm excited to hear the stories of what that might be. It may be a total stranger that you serve. It may be someone in your family. It may be someone at work. It may be someone in your neighborhood. I don't know. That's the fun part about this. But we get a chance to serve. There's a a crew, kind of a tour guide crew that's going through an ancient cathedral that's been doing a lot of renovations, a lot of dust work and chipping away at marble and kind of renovating, cleaning things up. And one of the tours kind of going through, it's a group of 20, 30 people, and they come by one of the mason workers and they they just ask him, hey, what are you doing? And that masonry worker looks up and says, I'm chipping stone. Goes back to chipping. They go on around another corner and come around to some other places that are being renovated and someone else just asks, hey, what are you doing here at this spot? Mason worker stops and says, you know what I'm doing? I'm building a cathedral where people will see the majestic nature of God. Then he goes back to chipping away at stones. Two different people. Two different perspectives. Listen, as the church and as the disciples of Jesus begin to serve, you know what's happening? We're building a cathedral of the stories of God and how he wants to intervene and intersect and impact the lives of people. We're building into the story of what God's doing in our world. That's what you're doing. 
and you're doing it to serve Jesus. And so we're going to move into a time of communion, kind of close up here with a final song. If you didn't send that text, I'm giving you until 6.15 to do it. That's 10 more minutes. I know some of you picked up your phone. You pretended to text. I know you. You're like, well, I thought about it. I just didn't hit send yet. All right. Do it. Push yourself to be open to what God might have for you this week to serve someone else. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about what God's doing in this world, and you get to be a part of it. And so, Father, as we move toward a time of communion, we remember that you're an incredible Savior who didn't come to be served. You came as a child. Not in impressive spotlights and all the fanfare, because you came to serve. And you said to your disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life. But three days later, I'm coming back. Because I'm laying my life down. No one takes it from me. But I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so as we remember in communion, as we take that bread, as we take that juice, we remember as your body broken, your blood shed, for the forgiveness of our sins, the reconciliation of our soul with you, Jesus, with God the Father. And you gave us a lifestyle of service that you call us to, and you say, look, I want you to serve. You want to be great to serve. And I'll see every act of service that you do. And it'll be like you're doing it to me. You want to be great. Serve. So, Father, would you raise your church of which we are the embodiment of that church. May we be people who seek to be great in the kingdom of God because we serve like you did.